Welcome to another episode of Rightfully So, a writer's podcast where we talk about writing for it targeted mostly at first year writing students, but uh, really for anybody who's interested in the process of writing or writing about writing or, or writing about writing about writing. Have we gone full inception yet? Uh, this week's this week's episode is the Little Mermaid Complex, or um, maintaining your voice in an academic discussion, or finding your voice in an academic discussion. Uh, it can sometimes be tempting when writing, especially for new writers who are who are trying to sort of like emulate what they've read in an academic setting, or sort of like try on the persona of an academic writer. It's very easy to lose their voice, right? Uh, in searching to sort of I don't know mimic that style. So. Um, Carrie suggested that we talk about this particular issue, right? Because uh, I feel like some of the best writing, and I agree, I feel like some of the best writing is is where you can recognize the writer's voice, right? Um, you you can kind of get a sense of who's behind the words. So I'm going to turn it over to Carrie. Thanks, Bill. Uh, yeah, this this idea came to me because I have a lot of heart to heart talks with students about using I and that idea of voice. And so I think it kind of starts, for me, it started with talking about using the first person in essay writing. So kind of to bring that as like the first question to everybody, uh, what's the deal with using the first person using I, when is it okay? Why do they say not to use it? You know, what's this whole thing about like it's, it's banned, but yet sometimes it's okay. Um, how do you kind of explain the first person use in, in essay writing? I, I have been explaining it a lot lately because it is difficult. And, and here is how at least I contextualize it in the classroom. I feel like at, at, at secondary and like high school level, teachers say you can't use I to avoid a very particular use of I which is the student narrating the process of discovery. In other words, saying things like, so I was looking at this book and then I was thinking about what the main character was doing. And then I thought about this other thing and they're literally just having like a stream of consciousness narrative and it's peppered with I throughout, right? So the minute you tell students you can't use the word I, it sort of short circuits that, that narrative point of view and it sort of stops that narration aspect that stream of conscious narration and really forces them to think about the words that they're putting on the page um and i say but now you're you're in college you're in university and and i'm encouraging the use of i but in a very particular way which is to take ownership of your ideas um also, if you're going to use narr a narrative devices like your introduction to your essay, of course you need to use I. I'm like, but the trap to avoid is that narrating the process of discovery. If you're using I, it, it should be um, deliberate and purposeful. I was reading just, just a, in response to Bill, um, I was just reading something where it was, um, it, I was reading a proposal where I is okay there um, because in one portion I'm asking for a plan, which is really difficult to do without using I, like I will do this or that, right? Um, but I did see narration of, you know, like I first looked at this and then I then did this. And so it, it gets, it's off track from what's being asked. And so I think that's kind of where it's hard because I think it is part of writing process for some students you know and so sometimes it can be worked through if they're going through in a second draft and actually then 
taking out the narration, but then maybe there was something that came after the narration that was actually a really good idea that um, should stick, right? Like, so it's this, it's, it's hard because I think for some students, it's not that they should stop doing it. They have to actually add the step in where they're revising from there, you know, and actually like going, okay, so I, I threw this out there. <laughs> now what, right? You know, um, so it, I can be really purposeful. It's just that um, it does generally, at least what I've been reading, it's, it's off track from what is actually being asked. So yeah, I think I think that's part of the reason. I mean, that's why I tried to explain to students when in the past you were told not to use it because sometimes it led to problems about, you know, it wasn't used in the right context. And so I said, so your teachers, you know, instead of explaining to you why, they just said, don't use it, you know. <laughs> and so it kind of became this blanket, you know, like rule that they all are just afraid of. And then that's when they default to one might think that, and I'm like, okay, <laughs> like, I feel like you're still wanting to use the eye, but you're just replacing it with a reader sees this as, you know, and I'm like, you mean, you mean you? <laughs> so, so when, when do you tell your students that it's okay to use the first person or, you know, what, in what instances or examples do you give them that say, here's a perfect place where you can use I? I think if, if they're, if they're um, claiming their argument, like I argue that the Jane Schaefer paragraph is a half-assed attempt to scaffold paragraphing, right? Okay, great. Use I. You're taking ownership. That's your argument. That's your assertion. It's appropriate to use I there. If you're using personal anecdotes as, as support for an assertion where you already have like an example from a secondary text or something, and then you want to sort of build on that with your personal experience, you know, oh, I saw this happen in blah, 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 right? So in other words, your your anecdote becomes in itself sort of part of the example or the explanation that in that sense, it's okay to use I because it's your experience, not somebody else's. It's not one's experience, it's your experience. Um, and, and then I would think that, um, again, uh, personal experience or narration, I often encourage students, like if they want to try to do like a narrative introduction to like their research paper or to a longer form essay, it's fine. And I always use my master's thesis as an example um, because I used I throughout because I was explaining how did I arrive at this particular idea because it was sort of unusual and it really wasn't necessarily like rigidly literature based. And so I felt I needed to explain that and sort of, so I used I, um, but it was more of like an autobiographical like anecdote, like, you know, faced with this, you know, challenge of how do you explain witchcraft I considered what are some of the other contributing factors, right? In that case, I is okay. It's not really on the border of narrating the process of discovery, but then again, I'm using it as an introduction, not an argument. So context matters, right? So what is the context in which you're using I? Um, and then I agree the whole like trying to hide I between one might argue or the reader sees or, or one might say, or it has been. I'm just like, stop hiding behind these overly wordy constructs and just take ownership of the argument. I know it sounds like academic writing, but especially in the, in the humanities, academic writing is rapidly moving away from that faux objective voice. And it's much better. It's much easier and more entertaining and more interesting to read now because we've moved away from that weird, um, overly wrought objective voice. That made me think of to um, one... I, I like to point out 
not only I, me, my, but when students sometimes use we or our, and it's, it, it's one of those where I will often pose the question, who's we, <laughs> who are you speaking for here, right? Like, and so it becomes this sort of generic, um, you know, everyone, you know, like kind of thing, but it's, it, as we've talked about, I think we've talked about this, like to be more specific is really kind of this key, right? Like, so um, I feel like those are tied together, like where it's, it's sort of, it's really, and, and maybe it's a replacement for I, right? You know, it's like, okay, well, we is better um, or it's something, but it's like, it still needs, it, it still is casual in tone, you know? And so it's, that's part of where, when, you know, in teaching academic writing, it's like, how do you get that tone, right? Like it, it isn't just like the thesaurus, right? Like part of it is constructing, um, it, and, and so it's not that you can never use I, but it's that I and we tend to make it less, less of an academic sounding, you know? And so it, it's complicated, but, and I feel like that's a whole other piece, but it, it's, it, it's interesting how that is, it, it, to me, it's tied together. Like I can't separate that either, you know, the hour and the we um, and tone because it does affect the tone ultimately. Totally agree. I mean, the, and I feel like that's part of the reason why maybe it's gotten such a bad rap to use I, because it sometimes can come across as a bit more informal. Um, and I know too, and I tell students this all the time, some instructors, it is kind of a, a pet peeve for them. You know, they'll see it and automatically their brain is just, you know, so, so I tell them too, I'm like, by default, some, you know, you should kind of avoid it. Uh, if you don't know your instructor's writing style, what they prefer, you know, it's, it's something that especially not to be mean, but some more traditional <laughs> instructors, that's kind of what they were taught. Um, so my thing is, is that I try to talk about the first person in the sense that, um, it's, it's useful, especially in the introduction and conclusion sometimes. And it's kind of like what you're saying about the we and the are, you know, <laughs> I feel like the conclusions where they start to get to, you know, we as a society and, you know, and they start to kind of get in this lecture mode and it's like, okay, calm down. Like <laughs> we're not, we're not proving, you know, some sort of bigger idea here, like, you know, focus on the essay itself. Um, but kind of moving away from the idea of this first person, because obviously the first person usage isn't the only way that we talk about voice or what we mean by voice. Um, and it kind of, and this is why I thought of Little Mermaid because when she's unable to use her voice, when she's unable to speak and use I, she's still very much the same character. And we see her mannerisms um, as a big part of who she is. Like we still watch her and we know that that's her, even though she's not talking. Um, so kind of on that note, what, what do we mean when we say voice? You know, how do you describe that concept to, to your students? Wow, that's um, it's really challenging to articulate, and I I don't know that I've necessarily have deliberately done so in the classroom. What's interesting is I I recognize it when I'm reading essays. You know, I can tell when students are are consistent in their writing, and then when they suddenly start copy pasting from internet sources, right? Um, and and I think from a quality <laughs> plagiarism, that's when we know. <laughs> that's when we know. And I think it comes down to. Um, 
habits of language usage, habits of syntax. Like, does this person habitually write longer sentences, more complex sentences? Do they habitually write shorter sentences? What is their vocabulary usage like? Do they tend to use the same words, right? Um, I feel like every writer is sort of like has a fingerprint. Mine is to use however way too much um, and not use a comma properly. Like that's my fingerprint. Um, the frequency of the word, however, like, oh, this must be Bill's paper because it's like every third sentence. Um, so even if you're not consciously aware of it, I, I, th I think that you can easily identify like the speaker's voice, right? And it, and it really does come down to those things like um, frequency of particular word type words or word types, um, the vocabulary in general, the syntax, the sentence lengths, um, favored punctuation. Um, do they use commas and semicolons or are they like very much like rigid, you know, every sentence ends of the period. Uh, and then things like, do they do long paragraphs, short paragraphs, like all of these things sort of factor in um, to, to create the writer's voice. And I think it's really obvious when students are trying on an unfamiliar voice because it comes across as very disjointed, you know, like words aren't used quite right. Um, maybe they're used to writing really short sentences and they try to write longer sentences, but then their punctuation is kind of like all over the place. They start throwing like dashes in there. <laughs> dash, here's a dash. We don't need a semicolon. We're going to use dashes. I, uh, I do love a good some, dash. <laughs> then they're just for you. Some parentheticals just for fun. Um, but it sort of like feels out of place, right? And it won't be used consistently. So you might see it in a couple places in one paragraph and then you don't see it again for like three or four paragraphs later. So um, I guess that's like a, a sort of like a qualitative way you could identify or, or, or define voice. Um, so kind of style. Uh, yeah. I, I, yeah, I, I feel like style and voice are, are sort of separate. Um, but maybe that's a failing on my, my thinking of the subject. <laughs> well, it's like I have I have my students reading like Sherman Alexi and Stephen King sort of back to back at the beginning of the semester because they both approach this uh, a similar problem in different ways. Um, and it's the relationship between reading and writing. And Sherman Alexi uses a lot of descriptive language, um, word pictures, if you will. Um, he never ever directly tells his reader a thing. He just describes something and, and then leaves it up to the reader to sort of infer. And and his language you know, he, he uses certain like imagery words. Um, again, there's those, those vocabulary elements that are sort of unique to Sherman Alexie in his context that establish his voice as a writer. Um, and then Stephen King has a much more, even though it's informal writing, it has a much more formal tone to it because it, its structure is formal. So he has, his essay has a thesis statement. If you want to be a good writer, you have to read. And then he's got a paragraph that uses an a personal anecdote to back that up. And then he explains how that anecdote is relevant. And then he shows you what happens when you don't have the intrinsic will to become a writer by using a story about his son. And then he explains why that is important. And then he has a conclusion, right? And Alexi is just sort of like, let me tell you about the first 15 years of my life. I read a lot and then I became a world famous author. Do with that information what you will. Okay, so his... His voice is a lot more informal because it's a personal narrative. It doesn't have the same structure, right? His vocabulary is probably on par with King's, but his usage is a little bit different. Um, 
So, I mean, I guess those things all sort of like work together as the voice, right? The form, the format, the, how formal or informal it is, all that together. Well, and your voice is different because it's tied to identity, right? Like, so going back to the Little Mermaid and what Carrie was saying earlier, it's like, she doesn't break from her identity, even though she technically loses her voice. It's there. It's just, it has to come out. Like, I think there's a line even Ursula is talking about like, don't forget language, about the importance right? like, of body this, language. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> so, so glad somebody mentioned that. <laughs> <laughs> it had to be mentioned. Um, so since it's tied to identity, it's much more powerful than like style, which seems less, it's more like a category of something. And so academic voice, is, is since it's tied to identity, it, it develops over time. It's something that you have to get comfortable with. And so it doesn't, it, it's harder for like first year students to like have an academic voice and you can't see my air quotes right now, but like that's something that it comes, right? Like eventually you settle into it um, and maybe not even until grad school, right? You know, but there's something it's, it's, it's part of your identity and it, it is present, even if you don't know how to find it or <laughs> you're not sure like what it is exactly yet, um, it, it, it'll come. I feel like as you practice the formats, that's gonna have an impact on, on your overall tone, right? So when you're trying to write formal paragraphs and maybe you're using axes, like these things are gonna, in, in the fact that you're writing a rhetorical argument, I feel like those things are going to sort of imbue, you know, form follows function. It's going to sort of imbue your your essay with that academic tone, even if your language is a little bit more informal because that's what you're comfortable with. And I really encourage my students, at least in the first year, is is worry less about vocabulary and multisyllabic words. Focus on clarity of expression. Get your ideas across. Focus on the quality of your argument. Everything else follows. That's so true. And I feel like, cause I feel like in thinking about all the different ways that voice can be conveyed, it's almost like voice is the umbrella. I don't know why I keep using umbrellas as my <laughs> analogies. I guess I just like umbrellas. Um, <laughs> that voice is the umbrella and underneath it's like, uh, you know, a little bit of style, syntax, tone, you know, kind of all of these elements that when, when combined and sometimes some of those elements are refined, like you said, over time, um, that that's kind of where, where the voice comes from essentially. Um, and so I feel like it might be, maybe it's just a harder concept to, to teach it, you know, a first year level, um, you know, composition course versus like we were saying, like, you know, when you go to graduate school, your voice might be a little bit more refined. Like, I think that that's when I started to take chances, a little bit more chances with my voice, where a lot of times in my introductions and conclusions, I often framed my arguments with, you know, either some sort of little quirky joke or, you know, kind of tongue in cheek thing or some sarcastic thing. Like I always tried to incorporate humor in my writing. And so I kind of used it in both the, you know, framing of the essay and maybe had little shout outs to it here and there throughout the essay. Um, but I didn't actually really embrace that side of my writing until it was, you know, after first year. So, so it does, it is something that takes time. Well, and you're writing so much more in grad school than you ever do in undergraduate. And I don't know that 
undergraduates know that, but it's like you are writing so much that it has to like eventually it just comes and you're like, oh yeah, I guess I, you know, and you can recognize it in yourself and in in your peers' work, right? Like, so if I read something that you wrote, Carrie, like I I can kind of figure out it's you, right? Like it's so it's something where um it, but it, it comes from doing it a lot, right? Yeah, that that average 25 page page length for term papers in grad school. I don't think I wrote anything shorter than that the whole four years. It was, it was brutal. Yeah. Read two novels a week and then write, you know, hundred plus pages, you know, per class per semester. Yikes. <clears throat> but yeah, it's, it's funny. I feel like I found my voice early on, but it was really pretentious. <laughs> like I read some of my old stuff now and I'm like, it's smart really pedantic. Like if I were to do it again, I feel like I would be more comfortable writing like Carrie and, and finding those elements of humor, which feels more like myself, right? That very dry wit. Um, my papers are very serious. They're very self-serious. They have something to prove. I don't know what it is. Look how smart I am, I guess. Um, Okay, so we're pretty much out of time for, for this week's episode. Um, I feel like the conclusion we arrived at is this takes time. Uh, like the common refrain for all of these episodes has been, it takes time. Uh, but hopefully we gave you some insight as to, you know, what it means to have a voice as a writer and maybe give you an idea of how you might, you know, recognize your own voice in your writing and then start privileging that and then like refining it so that you can write at that academic level, but still maintain your identity without having to rely on body language. Uh, any well <laughs> any last words uh, from Carrie or Jeanette? Um, I think I think part of it is you know I think um, because I know a lot of students want to find that academic voice too because they feel like that's kind of appropriate especially for the purpose of academic writing um, and I would almost say you know one way to do that is just to read a lot of academic writing read academic journals and and you start to see the habits or the kind of those stylistic choices that some of those writers make and sometimes it's a little easier to kind of go oh I like the way that they do that maybe that's something I can kind of you know work on and enhance in my own writing so my advice to students would be to to kind of you know look at writers that you do enjoy their voice and then that kind of helps you to to uh you know work on your own that's a great point i mean we tend to think of creative writers as the only one with other one the only ones with distinct voices but scholarly pieces academic writers also have that and the more you read the more you will see it, right? Like it'll eventually, you know, it's like, why do I like this writer's way of doing things and not this other's? Like that Peter Elbow, like he, <laughs> he's easy to understand. <laughs> and that, that Derrida, I don't know what the hell he's saying, <laughs> right? Like, so it's, you know, it's not just the subject matter. It is, you know, like it's something where, um, it, it comes with the reading, right? Like it comes with the reading, it comes with the practice. Like it does take time. Yeah, that's that's great. Um, reading those mentor texts and learning from them. Uh, one last thing I want to point out about the whole I thing is just remember when you're using I in a paper, it puts the focus on the author. And when you don't use I, it allows you to put the focus on the subject. So think about that as you're writing. Where do you want the focus to lie? Do you want the focus to be on you, the writer, the speaker, or do you want it to be on the subject? 
Yes. All right, I think that'll do it for the, it's the purpose. Purpose. What is your uh, purpose? That, <laughs> what is your purpose? Yeah. Why are you here? That'll do it for this week's episode of Rightfully So Podcast. Uh, we are now on Apple Podcasts, which is awesome, right? Uh, easily discoverable now. You can just type in Rightfully So in the search bar. Um, or you can look for, I'll put the link somewhere on our, our podcast website so that you can navigate to it. Um, so find us there, share us with all of your friends, and now just get out there and write something. <laughs>